0: bulletproof radio a state of high performance
1: today's episode is super fun. And you're going to want to listen through all the way to the end because I'm interviewing one of the world's very top experts on smart drugs. We're going to tell you things like how you can get rid of herpes with this up one that's almost free. You're going to hear about the future of cognitive enhancement, the future of living forever, how long he thinks he's going to live and some really interesting discussions at the end there around some of the psychological sides of things. So it's a fascinating episode with a truly brilliant human being. Hopefully, you enjoy the whole show. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that we just found a drug that promotes goal-directed behavior. And basically, this is a drug that stimulates neuron pruning that can push at least mice away from habit-driven behaviors, at least when they combine it with retraining. And the drug is called fasudil. It's approved in Japan for treating strokes. And what it does is it inhibits an enzyme that stabilizes your skull's internal skeletons. Well, they don't really have a skeleton, but anyway, that's how they, they describe it in the study. And they think that what these tools could do is be effective in facilitating treatment of drug abuse and preventing relapse. What they're saying is that some habits are adaptive, like you can turn off a light when you exit a room, it's it's good for you. But others are maladaptive, like checking the light switch 500 times or using drugs all the time. So what they're trying to do in the study is saying, how do we help people break a habit like cocaine? And they're thinking that this may work. This is right at the, the cutting edge of using either food, nutrients, lifestyle, environmental factors, or even pharmaceuticals to increase neuroplasticity or make it easier to do something. Now, one group of people could say this is you know, profoundly evil. Uh, although I got to tell you, my, my deal here is, look, if I can find a way without harm or without meaningful harm to make it easier for me to do something that I have chosen to do, I will always take that path. And you can say, well, what if there's something we don't know? I got bad news for you. There's something you don't know right now. You just haven't thought about it. In fact, right now, there are millions of environmental variables programming your biology, and you didn't think about all of them. So if you weren't afraid before, be afraid now. All right. Time for today's show. One of my favorite human beings in the biohacking realm, a guy I've known for almost 20 years, the guy who wrote. The book Smart Drugs and Nutrients uh, 2. This was a while back. And the guy who actually saved my career before I met him. Uh, This is a guy who, in the 80s and early 90s, ran something called Smart Drug News, which was a printed newsletter that he sent out about all the things you could do to enhance your brain. So, when my brain was falling apart, I'm working in Silicon Valley, I'm just not able to, to pay attention and I can't remember anything. I downloaded these newsletters and I read them all and was like, I can try this. I can order this stuff. It was Steve. Steve Folks is the guest, by the way. It was his work that got me to order my first $1,200 worth of smart drugs from Europe that turned my brain back on, that let me keep working. And eventually led me to become a professional biohacker. So this guy is like old school mad scientist, brain hacking, biohacking, going to live forever <laughs> genius. A dear friend and advisor, and just someone who has my utmost respect. Steve, welcome back on Bulletproof Radio. It's been a while. It has
2: been a while. It's good to be back.
1: How was that for an intro?
2: Good. Yeah. Now <laughs> <laughs> your sales gene is
1: showing. My sales gene. It's all <laughs> true, though. Everything I'm saying. You've actually spent, uh, I would say, now 30 years looking at cognitive enhancement and looking at the anti-aging movement and how to live a long time. And your work has, has percolated throughout uh, throughout the field. And it's, it's had a huge impact on my ability to do stuff. Uh, so just wanted to first say thanks. <laughs> and then I want to pick your brain. Fire away. Let's start before we get into the brain stuff. Let's start with something else I just posted on Facebook recently. You wrote a little book a while ago about a preservative called BHT. Indeed. And that's butylated hydroxy toluene, which is kind of taken a bad rap because they use it in some packaging materials to maintain product freshness. What was your book about? And kind of give me the skinny on what people can use BHD for.
2: Well, BHT was originally, the initial breakthrough research was done in 1975, where it was used as a treatment for herpes. And the original studies were done with herpes, and then they gradually found out that when they studied a broad selection of viruses, that it worked on all the lipid envelope viruses, which was a broad spectrum of some of the most troublesome viruses for humans that exist on the planet. So that covers the realm for CMV and Epstein-Barr and even things like influenza that we run into fairly regularly. Some of the really exotic ones like SARS and Ebola.
1: What about herpes?
2: Well, herpes was where it started. You know, when I started a vitamin company way back in the bad old days of 1979, um, it was one of the products that I introduced to the U.S. health food market. And that was kind of an interesting idea of selling a preservative to people who were very anti preservative. Uh, But we did it and we started getting all these reports from people who had used BHT in a variety of ways. And and about 20 percent of them were people who were saying, well, you know, my skin improved and I look younger and various kinds of skin problems resolved. But because I was selling product and selling BHT, I couldn't talk about any of those kinds of findings. That was back in the days when free speech didn't exist at all for commercial speech.
1: Oh, it still doesn't. Yeah, At least, uh, I was recently told, Dave, you are no longer in the era of free speech. You're in the era of controlled speech. Because once you start uh, selling a product that you believe so much and you created it, you're no longer allowed to say some of the things it does, which is a bizarre thing. Yeah. But you ended up writing a book about BHT that that's available online at various places. And you were finding people were completely eliminating herpes with essentially a a dollar or two worth of synthetic uh, preservative.
2: Yeah. Over the course of a year, maybe they might spend $10.
1: (laughs) Okay. A dollar a month. Sorry. (laughs) But to this day, you see people spending thousands of dollars on anti herpes meds when there is a cheap available and largely safe supplement or oh, it's not even a supplement, it's a synthetic thing, but whatever you want to call it, you can take it and it drives stuff up. It's an off switch for these viruses and it's like almost free and no one talks about it except for you because you put it on the market. So I, I wanted to offer that to listeners. Like if you're dealing with those uncomfortable sores and uncomfortable places visible or not, there's there's like a quick and almost free way to solve the problem. Yeah.
2: I mean, one of the things that I run into a lot is cytomegalovirus and hepatitis C is the is the one that I think is kind of considered to be more troublesome than the average kind of lipid envelope viruses in terms of modern drugs and many people just you know they try all the different drugs for hep c and it and none of them work and i had a client well a father of a client who was actually dying who had very very high hep c titers in secondary i think it was secondary to hemochromatosis too much iron and he did bht and within a week his titers dropped And within a month, his titers were 25% of what they were before the BHT. So this can be incredibly powerful, even in people who've tried a lot of drugs and it just – None of them have worked.
1: For a while in the 80s, people took BHT as an anti-aging drug, and I took it for about a year or two. But then I found a set of studies that said long-term use probably isn't so good for your liver, and I quit doing it. Do you take BHT today?
2: Uh, not at the moment, but a couple of days ago when I caught a cold and didn't know if it was going to develop into a flu or not, I took some BHT at that time. So I have it just sitting on my you know, medicine chest or my lazy Susan of vitamins. <laughs> it's sitting there waiting for circumstances. And I've used it you know a dozen times during my life.
1: yeah, i uh, I also have a bottle of this stuff. and if there's something weird going on, I'll take a little bit, but I don't take it on a regular basis anymore. And normal dose three hundred milligrams or something like that, if I remember right?
2: Uh, yeah, i I do anywhere from two hundred to a thousand,
1: okay. Well, for people listening, there you go. If you have strange viruses and you can Google, is it a lipid encapsulated virus? If it is, this stuff gets in there, messes with the way the virus uses fat and the virus dies and you don't. And that's cool. All right. That was just a quick little nugget. Let's get into the real meat of things. How long are you going to live, Steve? Somewhere between uh, 99
2: and uh, 130. Only
1: 130? I mean, yeah. Why?
2: Because we haven't got a breakthrough yet for actually obstructing the maximum lifespan of the human species yet so you know but i expect that that could easily happen in the next 10 years there's so much money and you know an improved understanding of aging mechanisms that's certainly possible but right now the maximum lifespan is somewhere between 110 and 120 years and so that's where my current vision is that I'm going to live to be that age.
1: Uh, okay, got it. So assuming no additional scientific progress, you think you've got 130 in the bag with the stuff we already know today?
2: Well, 130 is pushing it, but 110 is not unreasonable, and certainly 100. So since I'm I'm about to celebrate my third, my uh, 66 and two thirds birthday, that means that you know I'm I'm two thirds of the way to celebrating my hundredth birthday, and so uh, that'll be a big party.
1: It'll be a big party. I will fly down for your party Steve because well <laughs> you're you're that kind of guy uh, I actually agree with what you're saying today I would say if we didn't if we didn't have any improvements in scientific progress and we just had the tools available today about 120 seems pretty reasonable 130 is pushing it I'm just betting, given what happened over the last 30 years, that over the next 30 years, a few things are going to shift, which is why I don't feel bad about saying at least 180 for me. Uh, I also have about 20 years on you uh, in in terms of I'm 20 years younger than you, which means I've got 20 more years of additional progress at the current exponential rate of change. So I don't feel that I'm even being aggressive with with something like 180. Do you? And do you think I'm – is that a little crazy pants?
2: No, because it looks to me like you know somewhere about now or certainly within the next 10 years – we'll be learning enough to shorten one's mortality by one year for every year of scientific progress. And when you get to that point, you know, where you get become a year older and the projections are that you're going to live more than a year longer, uh, you're now in the realm of catching that anti-aging exponential growth curve and riding it into the, into the far future. And in terms of accidents as being a cause of death or – um, political unrest and you know riots and stuff like that. Um, we'd probably live to be about two thousand years old before we'd accidentally die from something that we didn't anticipate.
1: One of my most controversial anti-aging strategies is that I drive a heavy vehicle. Uh, I I want to be the hammer, not the nail. <laughs> if, if there's an accident, <laughs> I mean, sorry. <laughs> and uh, there's actually really good science around that. It just in terms of longevity and having physics on your side, which is not to say that I wish uh, something unwell of anyone else. Who might run into me, but that just seems like one of those ways. Maybe I can avoid that, or maybe I can walk away from something that would have killed me otherwise. This is something that if you're planning to live hundreds of years, you actually like your odds of a piano falling out of the sky and hitting you go up for every day you're alive. So I I also have a piano umbrella that I carry. (laughs) One of the things I've been doing, Steve, largely because of the inspiration that came years ago and I started reading about smart drugs with you. And then I got connected with the Silicon Valley Health Institute, this anti-aging nonprofit research group that I've been an executive of for almost 20 years now, is that I've been aggressively pursuing these anti-aging therapies like stem cells, uh, natural killer cells, mitochondrial enhancement, and pretty much everything I can think of that might give me 1% here, 10% there, with the idea that these will become built into our healthcare system. These will become built into the things that we do as just as human beings. So they're expensive now, but they won't be expensive 10 years from now, just like cell phones have dropped in price over and over and over. I'm expecting the same thing to happen you have a little bit more experience than I do though. Do you are you encouraged by the progress that we're seeing? Like do you do you think the cost of anti-aging therapies is coming down at a reasonable rate? Do you think it will come down? Well,
2: it is coming down and it's going to come down even more, but I don't put much store in those kinds of interventions. I think that by the time stem cell reimplantation technology is approved by the FDA, we'll be able to take older stem cells and rejuvenate and, re- and clone them. And therefore there'll be an end run around that technology. Plus, so much of what inv- is involved in aging is based on subtle systems and feedback systems in our biology that the real breakthrough is gonna take place in the application of sensor technology and large data set processing to wearables. In other words, if you can put a device on you and monitor blood flow in your brain and EEG activities and stuff and look at things like sleep quality, and uh, microcirculation and heart rate variability and track that kind of stuff on a minute-by-minute basis, urine pH changes on a minute-by-minute basis, that we'll be able to reverse engineer pathologies at such an early stage that a lot of anti-aging therapies will fall by the wayside or will only be analyzed in terms of how they influence these kinds of metrics.
1: So you're looking at a world where you wake up in the morning and your ring or your mattress or something tells you how you did last night. You wake up, you pee, and the toilet tells you how you're doing right now based on your pee. And then some other possibly implanted or stick-on sensors or cameras in the room are monitoring you so that you know very, very early when something is going in the wrong direction and you can take corrective action. That's right.
2: And that you'll be able to judge every supplement that you take, every food that you eat, every activity that you do, the quality of your exercise, how, how does your heart rate recovery play into your well-being? You're able to judge all those based on this continuous monitoring that's going on.
1: Now, it, this may sound like science fiction to a lot of people listening. I, I did my first heart rate recovery thing in what, 2008 with uh, the HeartMath Institute. You know, you, I wore a 24-hour EKG thing for a week. And I mean, I was CTO at Basis, the wristband monitoring company, the first guys who get heart rate from the wrist, including heart rate variability, although they never turned it on. But now we, we actually have this monitoring technology, and it's getting better and cheaper all the time. But what we didn't have was adequate machine learning, where you could take all this data, stick it up in the cloud. And that's just coming online now. So we're seeing companies like Like Viome is doing that with everything going on in your your gut to see what's happening there. Uh, We're doing it with Brainwaves at 40 Years of Zen uh, at Bulletproof Labs. We're taking all these exercise metrics along with a bunch of blood data from the clinical side of the operation there. And Mm -hmm. when you plug all that in for hundreds of thousands of people, I think, like you said, there's learning that no one knows and it goes so far beyond you know a clinical drug trial or the nurses study of you know whatever people remembered eating for the last month that data is is dirty and not not real time and we're not looking at all these metrics so i'm 100% with you on where we're going there And I think there might be some sizable resets, like you can make your immune system operate like you're 20 years younger than you are. If there's upgrades along the way, I'm certainly going to plug myself into those. But I absolutely agree. Prevention, where you know what's going on 25 years before you're going to feel it. (laughs) Like that's the most precious knowledge we could have.
2: I think it goes far beyond that. So, for example, back, you know, 30 years ago, I was doing urine pH testing, uh, urine pH monitoring, where... Every time I would pee, I would measure my urine pH and I would plot the results over a 24-hour cycle as a curve and then would then look at how Monday was different from Tuesday, was different from Wednesday based on different kinds of breakfast or taking a different supplement or um, you know whatever it was. And there's a limit to what you can do with that information when your urine is an average pH pH based on the 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 urine coming out of your kidneys being diluted into a volume of urine which you can only collect when you your that volume reaches a certain point that you can actually pee but if we could stick a sensor into the ureter and get you know pH data every minute you know even an act of eating a candy bar and What's your reaction to the the chocolate and the caffeine? Um, what's your reaction to the um, let's say the methyl and propyl paraben in some kind of a liquid dietary supplement as opposed to you know a capsule dietary supplement? We'll be able to extract all that kind of precision data from a data stream. Once we have a generalized analytical engine, a narrow artificial intelligence that knows how to take any two data streams, massive data streams, and look at the correlation between them, and then correlate that with other data streams, and right now that technology isn't available. Each company has their own analytical engine that applies only to what they're tracking, but... In the near future, this is going to be a generalized system where anything that you pay attention to, your aches and pains, what you eat, if you're photographing your food, um, in terms of taking dietary supplements, in terms of uh, getting a notice in the mail about an IRS audit, all this information will go into this analytical engine and it will then output advice to you about – oh, you, know, you need to calm down, you need to take a deep breath, you know, or um, you need to call your accountant, or um, uh, you need to take some vitamin C, um, your redox potential is out of control, um, you're having a bad reaction to a vaccine before you have an autistic reaction or a um, alteration in your blood-brain barrier that would naturally follow an alteration in your gut barrier.
1: I am looking forward to the day when we have sensors like that. I'm also a little concerned about bathing myself in electromagnetic frequencies that sort of change the voltage-gated calcium channels in my mitochondria. You concerned about EMFs, Steve? Well,
2: I mean, I don't, I'm one of those people who doesn't own a cell phone. So um, you could say I'm kind of a poster child for awareness of that kind of issue, but For example, blood flow technology for the human brain and looking at vascular changes and, um, uh, you know, in a sense measuring what would be an artificial or an analog of an EEG signal. That could be done with infrared light, uh, which can go right through the skull. And they now – Mary Lou Jepsen is talking about the – potential, the near-term potential of having micrometer resolution of your brain tissue for two to three inches of depth underneath your skull. And to be able to do that with a device the size of a cigarette pack. And this is using infrared light? Using infrared light where there isn't any EMF. Now, I'm not also concerned about EMFs on some level because we live in an EMF environment. And we just have a natural environment and we have an unnatural environment and cell phones create an unnatural one. But the Earth's magnetic field and and our movement and exercise um, in that field, that's a natural EMF environment. And a lot of the functioning of the brain depends upon local tissue microcurrents that are created by, for example um, – electrical signals from your nervous system that will then alter the way an ion flows through a gate, and you can alter that by an external field or by a certain frequency of modulation. So we'll be learning all of those kinds of technologies. Once we have an ability to judge that tissue level response, we can then analyze absolutely everything we do on a therapeutic basis or on a lifestyle basis for its effect on those systems.
1: I think one of the 10 biggest trillion dollar kind of opportunities out there is EMFs. Since we know that we naturally live in them, there's no reason that we can't make cell phones and Wi-Fi that are biologically compatible with us. And the amount of the amount of infrastructure refresh that will be required when we figure that out. You think Cisco was a nice IPO in whatever, 1990? Five or whenever they went public, that's nothing compared to what would happen now to the company that patents the technologies required to allow us to have wireless communication that doesn't muck up our bodies at least as much as it does now. Like this will Um, get it's illegal.
2: The, The Federal Communication Commission does bandwidth allocation where you can't build cell phones in bands that are biologically friendly.
1: Oh, interesting, well that'll change. Or they'll build it in Singapore where they just don't have any control.
2: Well, that's true, or the open ocean, or maybe it'll be done using some alternative mode like you know, red or infrared lasers or systems or something like that. So technology always tends to bypass those kinds of regulatory burdens. Once you know that a problem is there because you're collecting all this biological data, the political system won't be able to pretend Like it's not
1: a pathology. I kind of feel like we're at that stage where cigarettes were like, you know, they're actually not good for you, even if they hired a guy in a white lab coat on TV to tell you that smoking was good for you. There's no reasonable argument that says holding a cell phone up to your head is good for you because it says in the instruction manual with your cell phone not to do that. Yeah. And so like now we understand mechanisms. We know this. I think 20, 30 years from now, we'll be looking back going, we were kind of stupid back then, but now we understand it and we love our ability to have wireless communication. We just do it smarter. I'm sure hopeful because oh, that's, that's right. That's part of my strategy. I think aging it's strategy. true.
2: Okay. Just like it took us 30 years or 40 years or 50 years to recognize that putting lead in our gasoline was a folly, um, we will eventually come to that conclusion as well about, you know, EMFs. The, the convenience of leaded gas and the convenience of cell phone communication are certainly compelling enough To why we would resist those kinds of technologies but there was an actually an an interesting inventor who invented what i call a butterfly antenna for a cell phone where it has a directed antenna that puts a lobe uh, two lobes instead of having a spherical lobe for broadcasting where your head sits in the middle of the sphere it has a lobe in front and behind the cell phone where your head sits in the node between the two lobes and it turns out that the battery would last 3 or 4% longer because that energy that was absorbed by your head is no longer being absorbed by your head.
1: Nice. So you get better battery life and you don't cook your brain. I kind of like <laughs> that idea. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, it's pretty perverse, isn't it?
1: It is indeed. Uh, this is so fun cuz uh, you're you can go pretty deep on a lot of these a lot of these topics. But let's talk about cognitive enhancement. Years and years ago, you started the Cognitive Enhancement Research Institute, and this has been a passion of yours for as long as I've known about your work. Is
2: it? I was actually looking at neurotransmitters and the role of, of amino acids and neurotransmitters when I was in college in 1974
1: and 75. So I was just out of diapers uh, when you were looking at <laughs> amino acids and neurotransmitters. So th- th- There we go. <laughs> and given you know your life's work in in that field at least your life so far which is just getting going I mean, you're you're barely halfway uh, but uh what do you think about the real possibility of increasing someone's IQ what what's your take on it
2: well i think increasing IQ is very very difficult because you're talking about adding a mental capability that isn't necessarily inherent but for most people, that's not really the goal. For most people who focus on the issue of smart drugs and cognitive enhancement are about regaining mental abilities that, they're, that they've lost, of, of restoring their functionality to what they remember you know, in the good old days when they were younger. And uh, that, I think, is quite reasonable.
1: So you can recover IQ. And I would agree with that. It's much easier to recover IQ that you lost. And I believe, though, that most people are walking around with brains that are wired for more intelligence than they have, but that their entire life, they either didn't get the right inputs, whether it's nutritional or environmental, in order for the brain to express what it's capable of. In other words, you're running at 70% of your capability that's always been in there, you just didn't turn it on. So that intelligent enhancement is more about taking advantage of existing hardware not necessarily upgrading the hardware you have to be like smarter than you were it's it's like uh, yeah. running running software yeah. that makes your computer more efficient makes it makes the computer faster when you do that even though it's the yeah. same processor Schoenthaler
2: and benton and rogers was it did a did independent studies in california and great britain for looking at the effect of nutrients on iq in children you know grade school high school age children and both found that about one out of three children has an IQ impairment, which is the result of simple nutrition. So they would give broad spectrum vitamins with minerals with you know RDA level supplements to these kids. And um, there was an average of 3.4 percent increase, a 3.4 IQ increase in the entire population as a result of this. But when they analyzed the data, they found that, Two-thirds of the kids almost had no improvement and that one-third of the kids had 10-point IQ increases as a result of taking a few cents a day um, cost vitamin supplement. That goes to that question of how many people are just – have been living their entire lives – with suboptimal function because of nutritional issues.
1: That's a, a profound statement. I'm assuming the primary thing there was iodine. I think lack of iodine is, is responsible for massive global IQ loss. Were there other, other nutrients that well, were part that's, of it? Well, that's
2: more of a... Uh, a developmental issue. So, you know, certainly the human brain develops. It develops in utero. It develops in the first two years of childhood. It develops uh, up until adrenarche. It develops up to puberty. And then it develops up to adulthood. Each one of those stages involves different levels of brain development that lead to different kinds of skill sets. And my skill sets are very spatial and aren't in the area of language and verbal skills even though i can kind of do okay in that area i'm really good at design work and three-dimensional representations and and uh, schematic art and a lot of the the work that i've done as a as an editor has been in the in the realm of adding you know scientific illustrations to to books so that whole idea of saying for somebody who doesn't have that skill set could you take a smart drug that would make your mind spatial i doubt that i think that That's more of a matter of neural networks and axon branchings and and connections, interconnections that would be laid down, certainly during gestation, but probably also get significantly pruned in the first two years of life when half of the neurons in your brain die and are absorbed by the other half. And the, the ones that die are the ones that are incorrectly connected and the ones that get fed by the ones that die are appropriately connected. And that reinforcement of a random process into a tune process, once that's done, it's done. And, you know, trying to rewire your brain, that's a technology that isn't about taking a pill or taking a smart drug.
1: There are some studies of pharmaceuticals that allow more dendritic sprouting. For instance, you could take some low-dose Depranil. You can take things that raise a compound called BDNF, brain-derived nootropic factor. I know you know what that is, but listeners might not. So BDNF comes from exercise, but you can take some polyphenols that increase it by four times more, things like lion's mane, a blueberry, or we make Neuromaster. It's a supplement that does that specific thing. So I, I kind of imagine a future where you take some stack of pharmaceuticals and natural things that make your brain super plastic, and then you use either virtual reality or neurofeedback, or vestibular balancing stuff, and and you basically put the brain into a younger state, acquire a new skill set, but it might take a year of sort of drooling on yourself. (laughs) I'm not really sure. Is is that a reasonable thing to think about in the future, or do you think we're just not going to get there?
2: No, I think we will. But right now, all we can see is kind of the basic glimpse of that possibility, the way you know, the exact way in which we might take advantage of it, I don't think anybody really has a clue as to how that is eventually going to be implemented. But once we have an an ability to look at, let's say, the structure of the human brain at micrometer scale, or let's say even a hundred nanometer scale, we'll be able to map all those axons and dendrites and all the synapses Uh, We'll be able to map those and look at how they change with time, how they change with aging, how they change with taking a, a learning drug or how they change with a learning experience. And that will allow us to get feedback about this to tune those technologies. Right now we're kind of like blind men feeling up an elephant to say, oh, it's like this trunk and oh it's like a leg and it's like a tail and it's like an ear and we can't really do much with that kind of information. We don't have the subtlety to deal with the brain on its terms. And you know, the human brain is a incredibly intricate machine in terms of how it's wired, in terms of how it functions. It's electrochemical. It's electromagnetic. It's actual chemical. There's also storage mechanisms. There's a kind of holistic way in which the, the brain functions in terms of signals that kind of bounce around and have ripples that reinforce or, or cancel each other. There's just all of the subtleties to it. And each one of them can be measured. But on some level, we need to measure all of them simultaneously.
1: It's a big engineering challenge. And there are a group of us out there who are willing to say, well it is it's still a black box and, you know in in the tech world uh, that I come from a, a black box is what well, you can't open it. you don't know what's going on in there, <laughs> but you know you know what you put in and you know what you get out, and that's right, and with enough machine learning and enough experimentation and just the ability to share the experiments." that happen in something as simple as a Facebook group, <laughs> or just, just to talk about them and say, wow, if these 50 people tried something and got stupendously effective results. We can zoom in on, okay, we don't know what's going on in the black box, but we know for a sizable number of people, if they do X, then they get Y result. And the risk is that the people who don't get Y result, if they get a really bad result, then okay, now now there's all sorts of ethical questions and ethical considerations and the old, uh, you know, the old ethical dilemma: If eighty percent of people could double their IQ by doing something, but the other twenty percent uh, would become, you know, profoundly impaired, would you choose to do that? And it's just a personality type thing. Some people would say, "Yes, I would do it in a minute. It's worth it." And then there's societal questions, and we're going to face all this. And I think it's over the next ten years. This is not, uh, this is not a fifty-year problem. At least, not given the the slope of the curves that I'm seeing. Do you think I'm aggressive on the timing, or do you think that might? It's going to take longer than that. Um, I think
2: I, at, on some level I agree with you, even though I can't see the path to get there. So when Jebsen talks about her new deconvoluting technology for taking infrared light, coherent infrared light, and deconvoluting it to determine what structures that light passed through in the brain, in a sense to map the brain dynamically. There's nothing like that it, on the marketplace, short of let's say um, MRI technology or a CAT scan technology, which, if you look at the machine, it's the size of a Volkswagen, um, and you know is you know five million dollars, and you need a special foundation in your building to run it, and it's by no means portable. <laughs> to be able to switch from that kind of investment to uh, let's say a, a hundred-dollar device that's the size of a pack of gum that you can wear on your forehead, that's such a transformative technology that any prediction of future benefit that, that considers only the old way of doing things is going, to be, is going to predict timeframes of 50 years when this new technology might make it in five years.
1: So I'm hopeful that we're going to see just continued exponential improvement in our ability to see what's going on inside the black box and also to measure the data of what happens when we when we do stuff, uh, what happens uh, as a result, even if we don't have all the mechanisms or all the visibility. And that combination with the ability to share it may allow a very substantial brain re- rewiring stuff that we didn't think about or didn't know about ahead of time. But like you said, we don't know.
2: That's right. And there's a there's another issue too that as the pace of discovery and knowledge and um, technology innovation increases, um, the pace of human adoption of that technology and political resistance to that technology doesn't change, and so you have the situation where the gap between what we can do and what the government will actively promote and facilitate is widening in magnitude. And it's only in countries like the United States where we are a um, permission um, a, a permissionless um, technology society where law basically says that anything that's not illegal is legal, um, compared to other countries where only things that are legal are legal, we have the ability to tap into that technology tap into that innovation as citizens in a way that is not in any way facilitated by our political structures or our, let's say, our medical institutions. Um, So if you go to your doctor today, you're going to get, you know, any one of a hundred different pieces of really bad advice based on conventional thinking, because the medical system is incredibly non-innovative on a regulatory basis. The standard of care, for example, says that if a doctor does what every other doctor does, um, they you can't sue them and that there any malpractice or damage that they cause is not actionable. But if a doctor becomes innovative and something bad happens or even something that is just imagined to be bad, you can sue them. Right. So there's this chilling effect of, regulatory and institutions and government that is not as bad in the United States as it is in other places of the world.
1: Uh, I, I'm with you there. And, and I'm pretty sure that I've probably broken a law enhancing my biology, uh, not intentionally. <laughs> uh, the, the problem is that there's so many laws and there's so many gray zones where you can't even tell if you broke the law. Like, it'd be up to a committee of people to decide whether you did or you didn't. And that said, look at our problem with, quote, illegal drug use. Like the number of people who smoked pot before it was legal in their state is pretty large. And I would rather be living in a future where the number of people who enhanced their cognitive function and had more control of their... Uh, Their fight or flight response, whether or not they use legal technologies, I don't care. <laughs> like it, it just doesn't matter. And at a certain point, you're like, okay, the, the risk is very low, whether it's a legal risk or a biological risk, and the cost is effective. And you know, whether I had permission or not, it, it's sort of like, well, I didn't have permission to speed, but I did that. And I had I didn't have permission to smoke pot, but I did that. And, you know, when I was under 21, I might have had a drink and I did that. You know, you you can you can make laws, but people aren't going to follow them if they're stupid. And it's always been that way. Uh, So I'm I'm, there's also
2: things that are flat out illegal and considered wrong that actually should be a matter of policy. I mean, for example, my relationship with alcohol was set. Um, when I was five years old, when my father was drinking a bourbon, and um, I asked him if I could taste it, and he said yes. And that was so awful that I lost my interest in alcohol for the rest of my life. <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> your mean, father was wise. Totally.
2: You get that idea. That, But in this day and age, I think that sip of bourbon might be considered child abuse.
1: It's incredibly ridiculous. Uh, where I grew up... <laughs> Where I grew up in New Mexico, it was actually legal for parents to give their kids uh, alcohol if they wanted to, like to let them have a sip. Like you wouldn't, you weren't allowed to get your kids drunk. So for me, I was like, sure, you can have a sip of my beer. I'm like, why would I want a sip of your beer? It's gross. And so there was there was no interest in it. Sort sort of like uh, sort of like you were. And then when I moved to California, I was 18. And said, "Hey, Dad, you know, order order a beer for me with my tacos." And and the place went nuts. You know, the manager came over. You you can't do that. I'm like, it's my parents. Come on, like if they if they say I could drink something, whatever. And uh, uh, so yeah. I learned the laws were different there. But I think the same yeah. thing is going to happen. Laws for, are different
2: and cultures yeah. are different, and uh, that uh, in general in our modern society, and I think that this probably dates back to the dawn of civilization. That. Uh, humans know more about what they don't like than what they do like and are more likely to be intolerant of other people's decisions about things that they're awkward about for themselves. So ex-smokers tend to be very intolerant of, of non-ex-smokers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, a, it's a fair point. Well, well let's talk about <laughs> doping. Uh, this is another one of those things that drives me nuts. Uh, you get these 45-year-old male athletes who are not allowed to use bioidentical testosterone replacement. So they're forced to recover like older people instead of being able to compete with younger people by keeping their hormone levels at not superhuman levels, but just at normal healthy levels. And I, we know very well that doping in sports works. Otherwise, they wouldn't be trying to ban it so much. Um, but I, I look at all those doping technologies and say, well, some of those actually just apply to living a long time or or to performing really well. And
2: And you could also say the same thing about GHB, which is now criminalized as a a, uh, schedule one drug if it's not a particular brand. And uh, this is one of the most effective enhancers of stage three and stage four sleep. And it's the only approved drug that does specifically enhance stage three and stage four sleep. And yet you can't, it's, it's so friggin expensive, and it's so uh, unadaptable to the, the ideal physiological dose. You can't, for example, electrolyte balance it so that you can take a big dose and, and have the healing phases of sleep enhanced. You just can't do that in the United States. So anybody who's middle-aged and older who has some degree of sleep deprivation uh, can't use GHB once a week, which would be one of the cheapest and most effective anti-aging therapies that exists in technology today.
1: Now, GHB is, is known as is the date rape drug, but a lot of people listening probably don't understand what happened there. GHB is naturally present in the human body, uh, which is one reason they shouldn't be able to ban it the way they have. But... Even worse, they didn't actually ban GHB. GHB was was available, and then they did a press release about how it's now a date rape drug. And they basically just pilloried the thing in the court of public opinion and decided to ban it without actually passing a law that way. So it was an administrative action. And this is one of those things where I would take GHB several times a week to get more sleep and less time, or at least better sleep in less time. And yeah, I would only use it once a week. Only once a week. Okay, cool. I'm yeah. uh, I'm with you there. I, I don't know the exact dosing thing, but I would I would follow your instructions there because you've studied it way more than I have. But, but
2: well, there's a there's a naivete to things that determines a, the growth hormone response. So there are certain advantages to having stress, and exercise would be an example of stress. That if you if you lift weights too frequently, you do damage to your tissues instead of building stronger muscles and the same thing could be said of growth hormone releasing agents so if you're taking arginine or you're taking GHB to release growth hormone if you take it every day that growth hormone response will disappear because it's no longer a stress if you do it all the time but if you do it for a day and then you wait six days and then you do it again your body is developing a certain naivete to it so that it then when you do it again it's almost like you did it for the first time so a lot of bodybuilders and life extension people do um, rotation protocols where they'll do high dose of one amino acid and then they'll do the next time they do it with a different amino acid and then a third and a fourth. And and so by the time they get back to that first one again, it's been a week or a month before they since they've taken it. And now their body's responding to it as if they were naive again.
1: That's pretty amazing. So you, you'd want to do that. Uh, mm-hmm. It is available as a prescription drug, but it's something like $1,000 a month, right? And it, it funny enough, got banned right before Ambien came on the market. There was no Uh coincidence there whatsoever, right?
2: (laughs) Well, uh, you know, there's all kinds of weird stuff about, you know, the banning of cyclamate before aspartame became available and stuff like that. And when you look at the research that the FDA used to ban it, you can see, well, it's obviously fraudulent. There was absolutely no case whatsoever for how they did it. And therefore, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, some kind of economic motivated manipulation of the political system. And given the fact that the politics, there's no feedback loop for, you know, uh, efficiency or accountability within the political system, it's obvious that such things perpetuate.
1: Uh, it certainly looks like they do, given that the politics is a black box to me anyway. I, I have no idea what's going on in there, but it doesn't make any sense to me. But, uh, let's switch gears again, and let's talk about your Favorite pharmaceutical smart drugs? What has your interest two today? of them. All right. Yeah.
2: And uh, there's been two on my list, and they've been on my list for, for years. Um, and Pracetam, which um, is, for me, it's a way of temporarily rewiring my brain. And it's not actually rewiring my brain. All it's doing is facilitating a part of my brain that is uh, less than robust. It's... You know, the corpus callosum which connects the left and right sides of my brain together is not very well developed and this is classic in men and it's classic in uh, people with down syndrome and it results in a uh, an impairment of verbal and language and writing and editing skills which perversely um, i built my career on it um and so when I take Paracetam, I become multitasking. I'm able to do a better job of strategizing what I'm saying and uh, finishing up a, a, a conceptual development um, in, uh, without getting distracted by iterations and side explanations and stuff like that. Um, so as a lifestyle drug, it's a perfect thing for me because I can say, okay, today I'm going to be editing, and so I take Paracetam. Or I'm going to be on Dave's, you know, podcast. on taking paracetam, and that's, uh, you know, what I'm drinking right now,
0: in a subway uh, but,
1: cup.
2: <laughs> well, that's what, that's the, it's a, it's a layered cup with paper in between, so it's uh, thermally insulated.
1: Oh, got it. Okay, so you're keeping it cold. <laughs> I, I, understand what you saying. I made
2: doing. my own thermal cup.
1: Now, um, uh, your work, your are writing about paracetam, got me to try this stuff. In about 1997, uh, I started taking paracetam. And I was pissed off. I said, this stuff doesn't work. So after a week, I, I quit taking it. I'm like, man, I've read this, this you know, Steve Folk's newsletter, and I spent $1,200 on all this crap that took six weeks to get from Europe. But after I quit taking it, after taking it every day for a week, I noticed, wait a minute, I'm reaching for words now. My, my thoughts aren't as good, but it just felt so natural. I'm like, oh, I feel like myself when I'm on Paracetam. Uh, yeah. that I realized I did have uh, an effect from it, but it was a subtle effect, and I hadn't learned to monitor my own cognitive processing. And I'm to the point now, I've been taking paracetam or I like aniracetam better. Uh, pretty much every day, I've skipped some days here and there, but but frequently for the last 20 something years. And it, it, the stuff totally, totally works for me and it, it doesn't it's not ampy. It doesn't do anything like that, but my, my functioning is better on this stuff. And the risks are exceptionally low. Like, what are the risks of paracetam?
2: They are low. Um, And some people do have adverse reactions to it in a variety of different ways. And so, you know, it's not only just an issue of which racetam works best for you, and everybody makes that decision and is convinced that they're right and everybody else is wrong. Right. Uh, But the... The, there are some people that just don't seem to respond well to them and even have negative effects from it. And so it's just one of those things like clothing that you try it on and see if it fits and whether you like the, sh- the cut and the shape and the clothing and you make that decision on your own values based on what you can see. There's a little bit of a problem with paracetam because it feels so natural. It's not like caffeine where you notice something and you feel different and you can identify that differentness feeling from your with your performance Um, there's none of that with Prasetam. And so you really have to look at your performance independently, and it's very difficult for people to do. We can have plus or minus 10 or 20 or 30% change in our functionality, and it's just lost in the noise of our everyday experience. So it's very difficult for us to judge those things, and sometimes it's easier for other people to see that change. So I could see that I was a better editor on Prasetam but what I didn't see and my wife and my coworkers saw was that I was became multitasking and they noticed that I became multitasking. Uh, I didn't see it for myself.
1: What's the other pharmaceutical that you like? Definitely. Ah, uh, yeah. Good old uh, Depernum.
2: Selegiline is the U.S. name for it. This is a, in a sense, a miracle drug for middle-aged and older people who have any degree of apathy, you know, that kind of disconnectedness with the world and the loss of drive and competitiveness and assertiveness and becoming passive about your life goes to the issue of dopaminergic tone, and we lose that as we age, and Deprano gives it back. And so, you know, I've had men who just, they almost worship the ground I walk on because all of a sudden they feel, you know, passionate again about their life, and they become sexually much more interested and, and connected to... Their relationships and it's just truly awesome. And this is and it also extends lifespan.
1: Oh, the, that's kind of a side benefit there. <laughs> this side is a benefit, yeah. it's a low it's dose though. The, the antidepressant doses are like fifty or hundred milligrams, and you're taking like one or two milligrams is my guess, maybe up to five.
2: I'm probably at two at this point in okay. time, which is uh, less than half of what would be predicted from being you know sixty-five years old, but. I've always been dopaminergically dominant like I've been cholinergically dominant. And this is something each person needs to find out. If you're going to take choline or acetylcholine or B5, if you're cholinergically dominant, your dose is going to be much, much lower than somebody who's cholinergically recessive. And so this is part of the, you know, trying on your clothing, you know, and looking in a mirror to see if the clothing fits and you like what you look like and asking somebody else who you you trust you know, how do I look in this? This is all part of that process of fit and sustainability. I, if you take a cholinergic agent and you feel much smarter for two days, but after two weeks, you know, there's nothing there, then it's not sustainable. Even though you felt it, it's just not sustainable.
1: I, this is one of my concerns. We have a, a bunch of people out there sort of mixing stacks of uh, paracetam and, and choline donors. <laughs> and... and like a lot of people don't feel some of the things, or some things don't work; or they're counterindicated. indicated. So I'm very skeptical of those stacks, and I I see almost everything out there is just cranking on the choline donors, uh, the acetylcholine and alpha GPC and and all these things. And I I don't think that's that's going to work. It I feel like when I go to the store. And I want to buy jeans, <laughs> like every everything out there is a skinny cut jean right now. I'm like, look, I, I, this is because people are obviously either not exercising or they're you know they, they went vegan or something. Uh, but you know the, the stick like leg thing doesn't work for me uh, because I'm not built that way. And so the idea of having a variety of things out there where they don't all look the same. And where you can actually say, all right, I, I don't want that effect, but I want some other effects that are more broad spectrum, things like increasing mitochondria to make your brain work better, things like that really uh, um, are, are more broadly applicable. And then you've got to find what works for you uh, um, versus uh, what's supposed to work for everyone. And, and so the more numbers of ingredients you have... Uh, especially ones that are very highly specialized like these ones, the more risk you have of it not working, which is kind of a funny thing going on in the world of smart drugs right now.
2: It's been going on since the beginning days when – you know, I recognize that the way in which we age is not the same for each of the different neurotransmitter systems. And so the norepinephrine and dopamine systems age relatively slowly. And so the degree to which you might underrespond or overrespond to phenylalanine or tyrosine or L-DOPA is going to change from year to year to a small degree, whereas cholinergics like DMAE are going to change to a huge degree. So, you know, a 5-milligram dose in a child and a 50-milligram dose in a teenager and a 500-milligram dose in an adult and a 5,000-milligram dose in a centenarian that's a massive change over time that's orders of magnitude compared to dopamine where you know if you're 45 maybe you're on one milligram and your maximum going to get to 10 milligrams at the end of your life
1: i will tell you that when i first tried low dose depronil I took one milligram and I was about 26. Uh, oh, geez. <laughs> well, I, I saw an anti-aging guy, a friend of ours, Dr. Miller, uh, yeah. in, uh, who was in Los Gatos for a long time. He he was like, Dave, your brain is jacked. You, you're basically, your hormones look like an old person. Uh, your testosterone is lower than your mom's. Your thyroid's broken. And, and I tell you, I took daprinil and I got on thyroid and, and just started to correct what was going wrong in my biology. And daprinil was one of my most precious things because I'm like, wow, I, I got my life back from this stuff. And, you know, I I take it maybe once a week when I get around to it now because things work again. And I actually mean to take it more than that, but I already have. You're no longer crippled. yeah. I have 150 supplements I take every day. If there's time, I take a little squirt of of, uh, L-deprenil or not. But the idea for people listening to this, you said it makes you live longer and it makes your brain work better and it makes you like your life better. We're talking very low doses that don't have huge side effects either. And these are the sort of things that I want in the public consciousness because if you're walking around feeling like crap and apathetic and you didn't have to, and a vanishingly inexpensive. Uh, pharmaceutical in a case like this that might just make you live longer and not get Alzheimer's or something like that. The moral case for, for taking it is high and the moral case for not taking it is low, but most people have never heard of l depronil. So thanks for talking about it on the show.
2: Yeah. So the worst situation that it it can be applied to for you take Depronil and you run your dopamine up and all of a sudden you become obsessive about certain kinds of ideas and thoughts and, and compulsive about certain behaviors and you and you bite your spouse's head off. Um, then you know, okay, maybe I've got a a, a serotonin problem and that therefore, you know, I need to look at inflammation and be motivated to look at your food and your digestion and your gut permeability and, you know, on and on and on. Um, And certainly, you know, taking polyphenols might be included in that category of things. So if you do balance your dopamine and serotonin, most middle-aged people who raise their dopamine are much happier with their life. Um, they, they enjoy their friends more. They enjoy vacations more. They enjoy sex more. They enjoy physical activity more. Um, they're more assertive in their relationships with people. And that in and of itself of knowing what you want and being assertive about getting it and not just compromising and going with the flow and staying in the same dysfunctional relationship, um, that that's a huge benefit to people who are otherwise kind of in a rut.
1: Very well put. And I, I thanks for being one of the first guys to write about that as well. And one of the, the people who got me to, to, to make this a part of my life. Now, I've, I've got a question for you, Steve. Uh, you've been consistently ahead of the curve for 30 plus years, like, like throughout, throughout your life. Like you just you do this. And you you prioritize things differently, you think differently. And what I wanna know is, is if someone came to you tomorrow and they said, Steve, I, I wanna perform better at everything I do as a human being, uh, what are the three most important pieces of advice you'd have for me? Like, What are things that matter most uh, for people who maybe wanna change the game as much as you have?
2: It's hard to say that there's a general answer to that question because on some level, let's just say, I could answer that question if you're a human being as opposed to a dog or a cat or a horse, you know, is that it would be normalizing your collagen health. So humans have heart disease, ease of bruising and concussion inju- injuries and things like that uh, because of the fact that we don't have the enzymatic machinery for making vitamin C and it's we have to eat it and the amount that a dog and a cat would produce for somebody our size would be in the realm of 10 to 20 grams a day and the government says we only need you know 45 milligrams so we're dealing with a vitamin C level that's less than 1% of what every other mammal in our you know world lives with so that's a huge compromise that we make as human beings that at this point in time Costs maybe ten cents a day
1: for vitamin C. Yeah,
2: <laughs> ten cents a day. And what can you look at in your life that you consider valuable investment that you could describe at ten cents a day? You know, auto insurance, food, vacations. Nothing is that cheap. Awesome. Alcohol. It's never that cheap.
1: <laughs> so, so, so number one to be take that's your how vitamin I'd C. Answer that question. Uh, so you say number one thing of all the things that matter most in your life is vitamin C. Well. For just being a human. There you go. Just, oh, it, there you go. That for being really a human. It
2: really sticks out because we are human beings and not other other mammals. Right. Uh, but in terms of individuals, you know, how old are you? So if you're young, it's going to be different than if you're middle-aged or if you're a senior. And so that that would also answer that question differently. If you're male versus female, answer that question differently. And if you have traumas in your life in terms of your autonomic regulation— relating to perception of safety, if, there, if there's a trauma that plugs you in about a certain idea or concept or opportunity, that's going to limit your life. So, you know, desensitizing yourself to that with, let's say, EFT therapy or heart rate variability biofeedback therapy, yeah. that might be the magic thing for you to make you more adventurous in the world and take more risks. If you look at people who are seniors and you go to them, you know, within 10 years of their deathbed, and you ask them, what's your greatest regret? The number one answer is usually,
1: um, I didn't take enough risks. Beautiful. Uh, That was three. So take more risks, (laughs) take your vitamin C (laughs) to get your collagen levels up, and the middle ones uh, deal with trauma. uh,
2: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like uh, that we are imprisoned on some level by our subconscious glitches and that this is all reprogrammable, that you can learn to deal with things, learn to go back and resolve your traumas, learn to forgive yourself for mistakes that you made, learn to forgive other people for the way they treated you. Forgiveness on some level is a burden that we carry that hurts us. And not the person that we can't forgive.
1: Such wisdom. Uh, that's uh, that. That stuff is right at the core of of uh, the forty years of Zen work that I do. Uh, it, it's about uh-huh. forgiveness with a computer telling you when when you you tell yourself you've forgiven and you haven't. Uh, sorry, <laughs> you're not right, done you're yet. Lying. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, my my powers to self deceive are legion. <laughs> we'll put it that way.
2: Yeah, forgiveness isn't about
1: pretending to forgive. Very very well put. <laughs> well, well, Steve. It's always a pleasure to get to spend time with you and every week get a, a rare meal together or something and even more fun to interview you on the show. The last time I interviewed you was episode, I think, 94 and 95. So it's been too long. Uh, thank you for all the work you've done. Thanks for your wisdom. And thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio. Where can people find out more about your latest stuff?
2: Just Google me. That's just, right. you know, any search engine. Just plug my name in. And if you want to qualify it in some way like, you know, red light or smart drugs or uh, anti-aging or Down syndrome or whatever, you just add that after my name and it'll zero in yeah. on
1: whatever you want. It, you've, uh, you've been creating content for 30 plus years and uh, you're, you're easy to find. And I'm just I'm truly grateful, Steve. So I'm looking forward to seeing you again soon. And thanks again. You're welcome if you like today's episode you know what to do go to bulletproof.com itunes which will take you straight to itunes you can just leave a review uh, you just heard a, a powerful interview with steve folks who's a, a luminary in the world of cognitive enhancement anti-aging and a bunch of other stuff and i've certainly learned a lot from him and i hope you did too